These are remarkable stories. Once I made the NCTA team, the World Championships was being held in Berkeley、uh, in November. So I made the team in Berkeley, and then a few months later, we came back to Berkeley for the Worlds,、uh, and then I won there. So prior to that, no one really cared that Arlene Lemus, who had come from the point circuit, was fighting Taekwondo, because I don't think they thought I'd win. They didn't think I'd be able to transition.、Um, but then when I won World Universities, everybody was like, "Okay, we can't have a fight." And then the United States Taekwondo Union led a campaign to block me、uh, from competing in what would be the start of Olympic trials in '88. Arlene Lemus may be known for winning inside the Taekwondo ring. She shocked the world when she took home a gold medal in the Seoul Olympics in 1988. But behind her never-ending smile, she's fought some of her biggest battles outside of her chosen sport. She spent her life fighting, fighting for her own rights, fighting for the rights of others, fighting for a chance to compete in a sport that didn't seem to want her because she was too good at it. From her humble beginnings in a poor Chicago neighborhood, to the fame of becoming an Olympic champion, to her advocacy work now as the CEO of Pave Prevention, neither Arlene's fighting spirit nor her smile seem quite ready to fade. She's a real-life feel-good story of persistence and dedication. Arlene, and occasionally her dog, joined me from her Chicago home to talk about her life. Good morning. How are you? Nice to see your smile. <laughs> Good morning, John. Always great to see you. Do you always smile?、Uh, I don't know. I, I I think I'm an upbeat person, so、um, yeah,、uh, maybe I always smile. Have you ever smiled during a competitive match, like a Muhammad Ali when he was going back, going all whirlwind, and he's smiling like, "Oh, I got this, buddy. You're in trouble." Yeah, I mean. I've caught myself smiling in the ring when I land a good point, or when I get hit with a good point that I, <laughs> you know, when I get hit with a good technique, like ah, okay, that was a good one. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's got to be fun, right? It's got to be fun. What is the first emotion that goes through your head if I say to you Jang Chung Gymnasium? Ah,、uh, I mean, it was just so. Accepting, <clears throat> if I could use that word to describe it, there were so many U.S. citizens <laughs> in that gymnasium、um, that it really felt almost like a hometown advantage with all the military, U.S. military and service professionals there. That yeah, it was just an accepting, warm arena for me, and of course, also the arena that I captured my gold medal in. Which we will talk about, I promise, in a little bit.、Um, so you you were a Chicago kid, right? Yes, I am. Well, I okay. Am. <laughs> Does that mean we're both still kids? I believe we are of similar age. Here's what I'm wondering. So you, spoiler alert, ended up a world class taekwondo athlete. Did you grow up athletic, or did you grow up fighting? 
Were you uh, throwing your cousins around or siblings around in the backyard during summer picnics and your parents had to pull you off of people? Or were you athletic and this is where it happened to manifest? Well, I'm the youngest and I was raised with my four brothers. So I just fell into competition in a sense. Uh, We were a competitive family, whether that be, you know, playing running bases out front or, you know, playing a card game of canasta or back alley. We were, we were a competitive family and very athletic. <laughs> My brothers were very athletic and we were, you know, blessed with some good genes. My father came from a combative background, so he was a boxer. He had been a boxer when he was young, boxing, wrestling, taekwondo, jiu-jitsu. So yeah, I just kind of fell into it. And for me, um, I mean, I'd like to think I was athletic all along. Uh, there's a funny story I thought uh, I share about my dad who was groundbreaking. Now I know he was groundbreaking and the way he viewed training and the way he viewed preparation for sport. Um, when I was a toddler, even <laughs> just starting to walk and climb and jump and things like that, he would have me like jump on the couch and jump off, jump on the couch and jump off, jump on the couch, jump to the chair, jump off. Um, so, We know now that that's plyometrics training (laughs) and explosive training. That's a big deal now. But Mm -hmm. my dad had me doing stuff like that, you know. Did that just come out of his background from from learning this down and dirty versus in a a more polished environment? Or it seemed right to dad, so he had you do it. Yeah, for my dad, he felt the whole secret to any athletic success was explosiveness from your legs. You know, he didn't verbalize it like that, but he was like, you know, Mika, you got to be springy. You got to be springy, Mika. Come on, you know, got to spring. Spring from one leg to the other leg. Spring, spring, you know. But we know now that that really is the foundation of plyometric training where we're trying to, you know, stretch our muscles to hold more energy. That's what he was doing with me. So I was very fortunate to have that foundation. That's fantastic. When, when did that mindset more formally enter sports training? Well, I mean, I started martial arts and probably at eight or nine, there were some local tournaments that I started hitting. Uh, in addition to that, um, in inner city kids are looking for, you know, constant activity to keep them out of trouble. And I was, uh, you know, I was in that category as well. And so what my parents could afford is things that came through the Chicago Park District system. And so I was a Chicago Park District kid at a very young age. I went from like indoor floor hockey to whatever season was next. Was it basketball? Then I was at playing basketball and then there was little league. And then there was, you know, I even played tackle football through the Chicago Park District uh, League. I was the only girl in the league. Um, so being surrounded by sports and being involved in sports, it was very important to, to my family. Um, my mom claims that her being one of 12, the only way that she could connect to her dad was to know little tidbits about sports. And then that would give them their own little niche of conversation. Uh-huh. Um, so that produced a lifelong sports fan. And then that trickled down to me. Hmm. At what point you, you attended public schools, right? Magnet school in Chicago and then DePaul university. Yes. At, at at what, hmm, how do I want to ask this? Was there a non 
sports arc career path in your head um, if if this didn't pan out and, and nobody knows regardless how talented one might be right at the at the early part of that how it's going to work out so was there a um, I'm a good student I'm gonna finish school I'm gonna go to university I'm gonna get a degree in X Y right. and Z and then I'm gonna yeah, run off was... and be an ambassador <laughs> It was always political science. I was always intrigued. You know, Chicago is a hotbed for politics and local politics. And my mom exposed me. My mom is a a huge social justice person here and community organizer in Chicago. Um, I'll brag on her a little bit. Several years back, she was nominated for Chicagoan of the Year by Chicago Magazine. And so she won that award. But she, she does a whole lot of good. And that started very young. So I remember very clearly, I have very vivid memories of my being pulled out of school so that I could be an, could have been an extra body at a march or at a protest on city hall or so politics were in the forefront of my life uh, at a very young age. And, um, so yeah, my, my passion was politics and uh, with the thought of going to law school. I had an uncle who was very influential and he had, I remember going with him to the law library when he would be home or he would, uh, he would take me with him. So I have vivid memories of that. And he went on to become a federal judge. So he was a mentor of mine uh, and I looked up to him a lot. So that was what I thought I was going to do had my life not taking the, you know, the path to the Olympics. Do you feel like in, in a way, uh, although it's in a perhaps or, or was perhaps in a less political uh, uh, framework that that doing good has still remained a constant thread in everything you've done, that your mom shines through as much as your dad might have trained you with a forget me, I mean, forgive me, I forget what you called it, but when he had you jumping up and down on the couch, <laughs> stuck with you. But it, it sounds like mom stuck with you every bit as much because I think you advocated when you were a younger athlete and you certainly are advocating now, which we'll talk about later more specifically. Yeah, I think both my parents influenced me and I, I'd like to think that I have the best of both of them. Um, you know, my dad was also a very kind and giving and caring person, and he helped a lot of people throughout his life uh, in the ways that he uh, saw fit. And my mom does the same. Um, she just does it through a social just- justice lens. Um, so I, I think uh, the one thing they empowered me with is that my voice matters. Even at a very young age, um, they allowed me to protest at school, <laughs> to do to, to do things, that to stand up for myself and speak my mind. And they made me feel like my voice had value at a very young age. So I'll give you an example of that. Okay. During a, fi- during a fire drill, our class got in trouble and it had to be third or fourth grade. And we were tasked to write a hundred times, I will behave during a fire drill or 500 times, something like that. And I said, I came home and I said, Mom, I wasn't the one that was bad. I'm, I'm not going to write this punishment. She said, okay, that's fine. Just write a paragraph or so that explains why you don't feel that you should. And of course, I wrote far more than I would have written <laughs> if I just would have done the punishment. Um, 
But it really gave me a sense of like, man, I can do something about this. I don't have to just sit back and take it if I'm not comfortable with what's happening. And then the same thing happened again later, uh, like in eighth grade, they had this recognition of uh, the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And they were only highlighting a couple cultures. Uh, so I said, hey, you know, when, <laughs> why can't we, you know, do something different? And we ended up having like, you know, holiday traditions from around the world. And it was like a whole month of activities that came out of it. Um, but so, yeah, they never really, and that the same, that was the same process for anything. If I wanted to do something and they said no initially, I was always allowed the chance to plead my case, present my case, uh, and have a fair shot of winning. You know, if I did a good enough job, I usually, sure. yeah, you, yeah, you can go do that. So. That's fabulous. Um, did you ever badly lose a uh, backyard fight to your brothers? They were older. <laughs> yeah, they were a lot older. I was no competition for them. <laughs> um, the closest brother to me is eight years older than me uh, in age. So, okay. um, but I had my, my cousin who, you know, went by the name of Mr. B, Robert Barra, mm-hmm. and he and I are one year apart and we had, we are close, we are like brothers and sisters, uh, would be. And, um, yeah, we had some battles. We had some battles. What, what, it, within organized fighting, hold on, I'm going to interrupt my own question, which I do a lot. Did you not start out not in Taekwondo, but in another discipline of martial arts? Yeah, again, I didn't, I didn't really choose uh, the martial art that I went into. My brother was in it. Uh, and so I was kind of a tag along uh, with him. Uh, and then entered the school and started participating in the school, uh, you know, via that, that way. Um, but yeah, it was a Kung Fu school. Um, and it was, um, all adult men. (laughs) (laughs) And you were how old? I was, uh, between five and six, almost six. Okay. And you were going into Kung Fu. I, I feel so ignorant about the different disciplines of, uh, do we generically call them, are they all martial arts? Yes, they're all martial arts. Um, Kung Fu is from from China. Taekwondo mm-hmm. has its birthplace in Korea. Uh, karate has its, and variations of it, have its birthplace in Japan or Okinawa, depending on your school of thought. Um, so, yeah, jiu-jitsu uh, is also Japanese, but then has a branch off from Brazil. There's Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So they all right. kind of have their expertise. And, and how, could you, in 10 seconds, or what, what is Kung Fu? How, or how does Kung Fu different from, how does Kung Fu differ from Taekwondo? Also, is Taekwondo uh, think- one word in when we write it in English or three? It's three <laughs> words when you're speaking of the martial art. It's okay. one word when you speak of the sport. Okay. So that that's seems how like they, an how, unfair that's how tra- rule. The traditionalists <laughs> differentiate. They want to make sure that traditional Taekwondo people who don't believe Taekwondo is a sport uh-huh. and don't believe it ever should have been a sport or should ever okay. be a sport, they keep their the three, the separation of Taekwondo. Um, but the sport of Taekwondo pulls it all together. How does... The tradition of Taekwondo differ from the sport of Taekwondo? Well, I mean, real traditionalists in Taekwondo believe it's only to defend yourself. And it's, you know, you'll see 
um, they just don't be- they believe that the skill should only be set for inner peace and self-defense and as a way of life, not to win a trophy or win a medal. That seems, uh, a traditionalist will tell you that seems um, very disrespectful. Sure. I, I've <laughs> um, seen that so. in yoga as well. I accidentally, <laughs> I, I used to practice a lot of yoga and somehow one time accidentally sort of tripped across a yoga competition, which struck me to my core as completely wrong and, uh, and, and not in harmony with what I thought yoga was all about. And this sounds like a very similar sort of dichotomy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've had the best of both worlds, I feel. I think I've been able to be tr- true and honoring to the art of all the martial arts that I've studied. Um, but I've also benefited from the competitive side uh, and really enjoyed that. And that brought a lot of value, even without winning a competition. It just, you know, preparing myself health wise. And um, but yeah, I mean, I think they both I think I believe they both have their benefits. And I believe there's a way that you can be an athlete that that is that shows respect to the art that you have now transitioned to sport in. I don't know that many people do it, <laughs> but I think there is a way you can do it. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. Um, how how does how would the the art if you were to apply your taekwondo skills on a dark city street at night if you were being confronted and or attacked? How would the actual undertaking of what you do physically differ from the skills you would deploy in a fight in other words you're not trying to achieve points you're trying to not get mugged or whatever it might be right well i'll give you a really good example of uh what happened to a friend of mine this was at the time he was a u.s heavyweight he's a national team member for the u.s men's heavyweight and he was um assaulted (laughs) in the in the parking lot of a McDonald's. And he had never been in any physical altercation uh, like that. And he kicked the guy in the head um, like he would kick somebody in sport. And the attackers just, you know, ran through those things and, you know, messed him up. <laughs> okay. And he was, and he was distraught. He was like, you know, hey, I use my skills. I, no, those are sport skills. You know, if you were in a real self-defense situation, you wouldn't kick somebody in the head. You know, you'd kick them in the knee, you'd kick them in the groin, you'd, you know, uh, you'd keep them close to you. They're, they're, you just, you don't generate as much power to the head as you do to the lower body. So that's where you'd want to take them, take that power first. But yeah, it was a real eye-opener for him that in an adrenaline-based situation, that a kick to the face wouldn't stop somebody like it stopped somebody in sport. Oh, it would stop me. Um, <laughs> but have 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 you ever had to uh, deploy your skills in an act of true self defense? Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, there have been some uh, low level physical altercation that I've diffused, but mostly using uh, more of the confidence that martial arts gives me. Uh, and de-escalation skills or, you know, or just being able to carry myself in a way that if I say, hey, guys, what's going on here? It means something. Um, so, yeah, is but de-escalation, not, not really physical. 
is de-escalation taught ever or often with within the within the uh, the culture of taekwondo? No, it's really not. Really not in any traditional or sport martial art, and that's um, that's the component that I feel that I've felt had been missing uh, for a very long time for martial arts training, um, and that's why I partnered what I have grown up doing uh, with uh, the works of the empowerment self-defense community, which teaches those type of skills, de-escalation, boundary setting, um, which martial artists imply that they're teaching that, right? By the way you carry this, you're setting a boundary with your physical skills or your physical block. Um, But it really was an eye-opener, an aha moment for me that we weren't teaching those other human safety skills to go along with the physical skills. Okay. So I feel like we, we just, uh, whether intentional or not, segued into what you're doing now, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, somewhere in my notes, and my notes are never organized. I don't know if you've ever seen my desk. Um, I believe you contrasted striking self-defense versus empowerment self-defense forgive me if I don't have it quite right, but it seems implicit in that, that that one defends oneself both by the opportunity to uh, physically defend oneself, but, but the physical skills don't in any way give you the, the, the otherwise empowerment that you need to be able to diffuse, defend, recognize boundary problems, whatever it may be, which which is what segues into what you're doing now with PAVE. Right. So in the empowerment self-defense community, there are like the five fingers. They call it the five fingers of self-defense. Think, yell, run, fight, tell. Okay. Think. So, uh, think One more time. Yell. All right. uh-huh. Think, yell, run, fight, tell. Think, okay. yell, run, fight, tell. Uh, <laughs> and so, I mean, we, and we put all kind of inserts into those things like think includes your intuition trusting your gut you know assessing a room you know think is uh think covers a lot of things right and run is just removing yourself from a situation so it's not physically you know but it could be right well that's the old right the best bar fight is the one avoided sort of mentality that's that's where i that's where i shine but I run. So as a martial artist, as a coach, as an athlete, um, as you know, a lifelong advocate for athlete safety, I'll share to you that share with you this aha moment I had. So we had, um, unfortunately, our our sport, uh, the sport of Taekwondo, and not only the, that sport, but numerous sports, as we see in the news. Uh, can be riddled with predatory coaches, predatory mm-hmm. teammates, and predatory administrators. And this was happening in our sport, in the sport of Taekwondo. And I had crossed paths with some empowerment self-defense, the founders, some founders that had invited me to a uh, incubator uh, discussing how we could make empowerment self-defense more mainstream. And while I was at this week-long incubator, it hit me that this is exactly the skill set that needed to be imparted to our athletes. Because here we had the best of the best Taekwondo athletes. I mean, athletes that were meddling on the highest levels, 
were still falling prey to predatory coaches. They weren't, they didn't have the skill set to set a boundary. They didn't have a skill set to use their voice and say no. They didn't have a skill set to identify inappropriate coercion. So it was just such an aha moment that, man, I thought I was giving my students and my athletes everything that they needed, but I wasn't. This definitely needed to come into the spectrum of training. Um, and so ever since, really since that aha moment for me, uh, I have advocated to, you know, impart this skill set to as many people as I possibly could. <clears throat> okay, so that's what you are doing now in your work as the CEO of PAVE, correct? Yes. So what happened out of that incubator, a couple of things came out. One came the formation of an organization called ESD Global, uh, which now uh, has created a train-the-trainer program and is imparting that type of programming worldwide. Like it's incredible. ESD stands for? Empowerment Self-Defense. Empowerment Self-Defense. Okay. <clears throat> so then that was the first thing that came out of the incubator. Uh, now, PAVE uh, and a couple other initiatives are the second kind of wave of things to come out of the incubator. And PAVE and stands for, again? Proactive anti-violence education. And okay. the, my goal, I've been tasked with framing and packaging um, ESD programming in a way that um, corporations, businesses, institutions um, see the value in proactive education and anti-violence. And when I say that, I am tasked with explaining to corporations that violence is impacting your bottom line every day. <laughs> and whether that be the microaggressions that an employee is dealing with in the office or something violent that's happening at home that they're bringing to the office. Sure. So coming in with paved programming is going to help employees develop that, that think, yell, run, fight, tell those principles um, so that it's a better culture to work in, you know, to change the culture so that it's more empathetic to um, that. There are clear ways of reporting um, that there are open lines of communication. So that microaggression doesn't escalate into something that's physical. Um, sure. And I think, I think that creates a healthier <clears throat> and more productive workplace. I, I would th I would suspect that without a doubt, workplaces that are healthy and are absent of those <clears throat> micro traumas or whatever you might want to call them have to be more productive. So through your work with PAVE, is that primarily corporations? And <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to I'm going to jump right ahead to what my point is. Um, we're in a, a time frame where I feel like it may be obvious that this is happening a little bit of everywhere, but I feel like there are two sort of general um, situations that happened that have come out in the media that have to really sort of drive this point in front and center. One, of, of course, would be the uh, U.S. gymnastics team scandal. But I find it very interesting that we also simultaneous to that or overlapping with it somewhat – um, we had the uh, uh, the issue that came up from your hometown and your current town, Chicago, with the Chicago Blackhawks player. Um, and I find it fascinating and and important that when we think of 
a U.S. gymnastics team, we think of young, small, slight uh, uh, boys and girls, I suppose. I don't know if that – I assume it permeates in, in, in both <clears throat> cultures, but I think it came out of the girls' team. Or, um, but But when you contrast that with a big, burly NHL hockey player – who we don't typically see as being the sort of person who's going to be uh, a, a victim of that sort of thing, I think really drives home how how we failed in educating anyone with how to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, wherever there's a power dynamic or, you know, someone that is holding all the purse strings, whether that be a boss or a coach or an administrator, um, a relative, unfortunately, you know, someone who's holding all those purse strings where that, where that power dynamic, it can always be manipulated and, um, used incorrectly. Uh, and I think that, um, there was, a something very similar to what happened with the gymnasts that happened at Ohio State University, um, with the men's wrestling team there. Uh, and it was, you know, they, they estimate that doctor has since passed away, so we will never really know or get justice or uh, actually see the scope of his predatory behavior. But they estimate it's in the thousands. It's It, it would make the gymnasts uh, um, pale. Uh, but mm. again, in that, in that atmosphere, you have... It, it wasn't because they weren't strong enough to defend sure. themselves. I mean, right. these are, if you've ever seen a collegiate wrestler, <clears throat> they are, they are in incredible shape. Right. Uh, and, and they have the, um, attitude to back that physique and strength up. Uh, mm -hmm. so, you know, the fact that they were taken advantage of and they were, you know, assaulted and preyed upon, um, it just goes to tell you, it's not a physical thing. It's right. those human safety skills. It's those soft skills, as some people describe them. I don't think they're soft. I think they're incredibly strong and, you know, um, but uh, yeah, if they would have been given the tools to go, let me question this. Let me think. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, let me talk to somebody about this. Let me run this by somebody to find out if this is okay or not. Uh, but they didn't. They weren't empowered with that. Um, so what does it take to change so many cultures in so many environments, in sports, in corporate culture, in home culture? And here you are, one perhaps very capable, very high-energy human being, but uh, there's there's a whole lot of people out there. So how, how, how does that – how does Arlene Lemus's message, how does the PAVE prevention – program or message get out there to start changing how our young people view their their self-empowerment as they grow up in uh, well not just in sports but but in any situation yeah. where this could happen well for me you know i have tried to change the culture within the sporting world within the olympic movement and i'm sure that i've done some good um, but it has not been to the level that I've wanted to make the change. Um, so this new endeavor gives me a different avenue to try to make those changes. And I believe we do most of our adult learning at work. And we, and it's, it's a very impactful on who we are, what we do in our work and, and uh, you know, really 
adds value to the person that we are. So if we can impart these skills and make these changes at the work level, I think uh, the ripple effect. Uh, my intention is getting into workplaces. That's my Trojan horse. <laughs> you know, imparting that skill set in the workplace is my Trojan horse because so it can grow out is, from there. Right? Is that that ripples out? And almost every package uh, that we'll present to prospective clients will always have an outreach component where they can give our skill set uh, to the community in some shape or form. That's fantastic. Okay. Um, we will undoubtedly come back to that, but we're now going to uh, back up and get back on your life story in your arc. Um, and I have a couple of questions. Tell me, well, I guess this is not a question. This is a request. Um, <laughs> <laughs> see, yeah, it, it never changes. I just talk in circles. Tell me about... Uh, I believe you were in your early teens. Tell me about losing your home when you were in your early teens. What happened and how that impacted you and in what ways it impacted you? I mean, how can you not be impacted if you wake up one morning and you leave to school and you come back and all you have is the clothes you're wearing and, you know, the gym stuff you have in your backpack and the school stuff you have in your backpack. That's it. Uh, you know, and really for me, even more impactful was just watching the two strongest people I know of, you know, my mom and my dad look so broken, um, and look so devastated. Um, that was a, an image that, you know, stayed, stays in my mind, stayed in my mind for a very long time. Uh, I can still see it very vividly. And the home that we lived in was, uh, uh, it had three apartments. So not only did we lose our home, but my aunt lost her home and my uncle lost his home. So when we lost our building, um, it, uh, it was pretty devastating. And what happened? And, uh, um, so, the neighborhood we lived in, uh, although it's a quite quite the hip neighborhood now, Humboldt Park in Chicago, uh, in the seventies it was not. <laughs> in the seventies it was a pretty tumultuous neighborhood. There was a lot of violence, a lot of gang violence. It was a poor community. Uh, I grew up in a in, in a poor community, and uh, so it was not uncommon for police not to respond to calls or for fire uh, firefighters and ambulances to not come up, not come or to take a long time. And that's kind of what happened. Um, there was a, a, a fire in the house next door and it took the fire department, you know, over 20 minutes to get there. Uh, then there were issues putting the hose on from what I've been told, uh, getting the hose attached. It took them a long time doing that. Um, and, you know, the house was lost. And how do you think that impacted your attitude your mental outlook your life what what if that was the stone what were the ripples well for me it uh i think i was very fortunate because i because i did have martial arts and competitive martial arts uh but i went through several years just very angry uh and being able to have an outlet for that anger um 
probably saved me. So that anger manifested itself in all my competitions. So I was able to flip a switch and get in the ring and, you know, be all those things that people describe my fighting style as tenacious in all those different ways, uh, you know, martial arts magazines and reports, you know. Were you angry just because it frankly was a shitty thing that happened and you were just mad? Yeah, I mean, it it just, you know, I had kind of grown up, uh, you know. How old were you when this uh, happened? um, 14. Okay. And I, you know, I had grown up in this very strong Catholic setting where, you know, if you just do the right thing, it's going to, everything's going to be good and you're going to be rewarded and you're going to live this good life. And, you know, it just seemed to me, uh, I also have an innate, really strong level of justice and things should happen because it's right for them to happen. Um, and so that just kind of flipped that way of thinking for me uh, upside down because, you know, why did it happen? How did it happen? So it set in motion a whole bunch of questions for me, questioning my religion, questioning my faith, uh, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it again, I'm just so grateful that I had the martial arts uh, to uh, and competitive martial arts to get mm-hmm. into. Uh, but I was an angry person. <laughs> for several years after that. You, I, am, I, I'm assuming you're implying you're an angry person because of losing your house. Or do you mean just in a more general sense, were you just an angry kid? I mean, I think, uh, I think I had hit an age where I just started realizing how unfair things could be. Uh, and that'd be everything from the racial tensions in the city to, you know, understanding and really aha this stuff happens as you know we had a we have we the city elects its first african-american harold washington as mayor and then our tax base runs to the suburbs and now the city has no (laughs) the city has no resources uh you know so um it just it was that time where i think for me I guess I was living in bliss before then because it just it's like everything kind of hit me at that time. Like, man, this world can be a pretty yucky place. Uh, so I, I feel like that that probably happens to many people in many different ways in those those teenage years. But that sounds like it was a pretty significant point of demarcation for you growing up. So at fourteen. Um, you are still fighting uh, Kung Fu, or you're in martial arts, I should say. Yeah, is it yeah. Kung Fu still at 14? It's Yeah, it's Kung Fu, and I'm competing okay. on a circuit that's called the Open Circuit. So it covers all martial arts styles competing okay. in one event. Um, so it's a more blended set of rules. Um, and the organization Can I ask a really it? stupid question? Sure. In this blended setting, do you, as a kung fu fighter still only fight other people who fight kung fu no or, you can okay. fight you could you could be in an open tournament and fight taekwondo people and fight karate people and so you've got um, your skill set so, your discipline that you've learned and you're applying it against other people who have whatever their skill set and their discipline is right are there innate advantages of one discipline over another in point scoring competitions? So in a sports context? Not necessarily. Uh, okay. It's more body type. 
I think the body type and how you create your game, how you create your style for that game. My body type, as you know, I'm long legged. I'm, you know, tall. And um, at that time, when I was in uh, fighting in the North American Sport Karate Association, NASCA, um, you know, I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. I was the height I am right now. <laughs> um, so almost 5'8", you know. A little over 5'8". I was weighing 115, 120 at the time. So long, lanky, super flexible. Uh, so it was more of my my uh, my game rather than... I didn't fight like a traditional kung fu person. I was How definitely... So? Or, or, I was definitely already a blended artist by then. Okay. Uh, because I did what worked. My dad, I used boxing skills from my dad. So I didn't punch like a kung fu person or even a karate person. I punched like a boxer. Um, but I loved kicking people in the head. So that made me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's funny to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's the truth. I mean, um, I've, I remember early on, I think I was 15, where I received this editor's award from Black Belt Magazine as the most points scored with a hook kick to the head. It was this kind of, they gave these bunch of little acknowledgments and like funny awards. And, you know, right. yeah, so I won that award for the most hook kicks to someone's head uh, in a year. But yeah, I mean, my body type, my kicking style even though I had never studied Taekwondo at that time, was much like a Taekwondo stylist. Okay. And to the credit of my Kung Fu instructors, they just said, okay, that doesn't work for me, but it works for you, so do it. Um, and that's kind of been everybody's approach when they coach me or teach me as, okay, I don't know that I'd do it that way, but you do it, it works, great. Uh, uh, so I was like fortunate that way. The kid who taught himself how to throw a curveball in the backyard instead of learning from someone that knows the right way and can't unlearn his wrong way, but does it very well. And I'll share with you, John, that at 14, I was already teaching martial arts. So my the school that I was going to had closed down. So my dad set up some mats and a kicking bag in my garage. So uh, what turned into me training by myself in there Ended up, you know, two or three kids from the neighborhood, five or six kids from the neighborhood, 10 to 20 kids from the neighborhood training in my garage. And really, that's where I really learned how things worked and why they worked um, by teaching. And that improved my game so incredibly, such incredible amounts because before I just did it because my body did it. But then when sure. I had to teach somebody why that works and why it's important to chamber your knee all the way in and to recoil it all the way back. It just reinforced my game so in such a healthy way. Yeah, I learned so much teaching. You were teaching young. Um, I assume, so many ignorant questions, but I, I, I couldn't find my way out of a paper bag and, unless maybe I could with words. I assume even with all those pads on that one wears in a competition, if one is fighting against a capable opponent, it could still hurt. Would that be yeah. a fair statement? Yeah. Okay. So, Because I don't want to fall on the ignorant side of the fence where I'm like, ah, oh, it can't be that bad. You're wearing pads, right? I'm sure I could put on <laughs> pads and you could whack me and it would hurt. Um, the, the question I'm awkwardly leading up to is what's, what's the worst beating if that's the right word you ever took in in a either a competition or at least in a a, a class 
setting. So I, I don't mean in the backyard with your cousin. <laughs> uh, and I don't mean a points beating. I mean, was was there a match where you sat down at the end and you're like, my God, that hurt. What in the hell am I doing? Or I can't wait to get back out there again and do this to the next guy. I, not in a competition. So I've been fortunate. I'm going to knock on some wood there even though I'm not <laughs> competing anymore. Um, in a competition, I never was in a situation where I was so physically beaten up. Uh, that, that never happened. I may have lost matches, but I never was, uh, you know, to a point where I physically wanted to stop, um, because of pain or because I got hit too hard. Have you um, been on the giving but, end of that situation? I mean, I've, I've had my fair share of knockouts that I have caused. So okay. I'm happy with that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say that in a bad way. Like, oh, I'm so happy. I'm not. It's out. a competition. Uh, That's one of the goals yes. of your sport, right? Yes, you get, exactly. you kind of get credit for winning if you knock out yeah. the other person. And if you're looking at, like, say, an event like World Championships where I had six matches, each match was three rounds, three three-minute rounds. If I could knock someone out in the first round, then I just shaved two rounds off my day. Sure. You know, so, uh, you know, that's the, if you could do that, you know, that, that was the goal. But I never had those events that physically wanted, made me want to stop. In training, um, especially because I was training always with men, uh-huh. Boys and men. Um, there were plenty of times, especially when an ego was involved. So say I was fighting someone, a man, and I scored points or I was doing better than them. You know, their response would always be to outpower the 115 pound, 15 year old girl right. uh, rather than, you know, just acknowledge that, you know, apples to apples, she's winning. No. Right. So I'm going to go. If I'm losing apples to apples, then I'm going to go. You know, apple to orange, and I'm going to use my power, overpower them. Um, But, you know, I I felt, again, physically, uh, you know, I'm not a fin weight. I'm not fighting at 98 pounds uh, or 94 pounds. You know, I was a welterweight that fought at, you know, 147. So, you know, I could hold my own. Um, So I'm very fortunate. But those would be the times if, if, if I had to say, you know, man, I just... I'll say that there have been many times when I've been sitting on the mat or going, you know, you took my win with that one. Uh, you know, give me a couple minutes. You know, right. I had to remind myself that, yes, you can breathe. You just lost your win for a little bit. You're not dying. Um, but, yeah, you get, you get through those. And then, you know, it just prepares you. Because I had constant training with men and boys, when I fought women, it was just the physical contact was was not close. Yes, yeah. hmm. um, and so at what point did you switch from Kung Fu to Taekwondo? Can you walk me through when you switched, why you switched, and, and what sort of trouble that stirred up in your life? Well, I... Uh... I had already been the number one female fighter for NASCA, North American Sport Karate Association, for several years. Where are we here? Um, How old are you? Uh, 18, 19. Okay. <clears throat> and, and so I'm kind of at that crossroads. I've, you know, are you in college? DePaul's, yeah. Uh, DePaul's given me some money to play softball. 
Okay. So I'm trying. Okay, I'm supposed to be focusing on softball. Uh, uh, and they weren't giving yeah. out martial arts uh, um, scholarships. No, no. Okay. No, do they, they do they now? Some schools do, uh, but okay. not DePaul. Okay. Um, and so I was at a crossroads. Like, where do I want to go? Do I want to focus on other sports? Do I want to focus on softball and basketball? I'm good at those events too. Uh, and at that same time, Taekwondo had been accepted into the Olympics for 1988. So people in the community, especially in the Chicago area, were like, Arlene, I mean, that's your style. You can do it. So I said, okay, I'll try it out. It's a different format, but I'll try it out. I'm going to interject so real quick. You're you're in school. You're at DePaul, mm-hmm. right? On a, would you say, softball scholarship. Yeah. You are fighting competitively kung fu still is there are you doing this on the side like through a a, a, a private organization uh, are you doing it I'm, on a collegiate I'm, level how does that work i'm winding down from the open circuit of nasca okay I'm kind of pulling my way out of that and focusing more on school and school okay. sports uh and then like i said they approached me about taekwondo being in the olympics who is they and uh, just local community martial artists like, hey, Arlene, I think you could do really good at this. You know, other coaches, other instructors. And so I said, you know what? There's a regional tournament here at a local community college. I'm going to I'm going to go fight. Um, and I fight in this event and the format is much different than I'm used to. It's three rounds, three, three minute rounds. It's full contact. Um, I can't punch to the face, but I can kick to the face, and I fall in love with it. And how does this compare with the the, the framework you've been fighting in? Um, the framework I was fighting in was considered point. Okay. So you couldn't knock anyone out. It was mostly a touch game. It, I mean, we hit each other with some good power, but if I jolted somebody's head back, I'd be penalized because it was too much contact. Um, so... And it was a game of tag. When I scored, judges stopped us, call for points, call. Um, so this was more continuous. Scoring was, you know, at the end of each round, they tabulated scores. Uh, and if I knocked somebody out, I won. So, it, <laughs> so for the first time in a long time at that point, I was really excited about learning something new, doing something new, training a different way. Uh, and I was hooked. I was hooked. I remember thinking that I was in really good shape going into that tournament. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember just my chest burning from fighting the three, three minute rounds and it being continuous and um, going, man, I like this challenge. I like really, I I like this. And I didn't look back after that. I stopped fighting point uh, almost immediately and focused uh, just on the, uh, on the, you know, to make the team. Okay, so you are are fighting, and again, so is there a collegiate martial arts circuit? Are you fighting in that? Or I know so you said first... NASCA. Yeah, I. But yeah. I, this is also so, foreign to me. So what happens now is the first chance for me to make a team mm-hmm. is at the to make the U.S. collegiate team to go to World Universities. So I go to this event at UC Berkeley to try to make the U.S. collegiate team. And this uh, and would be U.S. Collegiate Taekwondo team. Yes. Yes. Okay. National and Collegiate Taekwondo Association, NCTA. And this would be the equivalent of you're on the U.S. 
what, what, what would it be equivalent to in something that's maybe more mainstream? I mean, it's a U.S. That, national team. Okay. It's a U.S. national yeah, team. Yeah, so that, it's like being on the competing. U.S. gymnast team or whatever. And then right. they compete uh, against other similar organizations from other countries around the world or within yeah. the so, states. How does that work? So once I made the NCTA team, the World Championships was being held in Berkeley, uh, in November. So I made the team in Berkeley. And then a few months later, we came back to Berkeley for the Worlds. Uh, and then I won there. So prior to that, no one really cared that Arlene Lemus, who had come from the point circuit, was fighting Taekwondo. Because okay. I don't think they thought I'd win. They didn't think I'd be able to transition. Mm. Um, but then when I won World Universities, everybody was like, okay, we can't have a fight. She's not one of us. She's a point fighter. She can't win at this. Uh, okay, so I'm going to ask the same question again. Who are these they people? Who is it within the sport that's going, no, 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 no to you. So Go the, away. At the time, the national governing body. So you have the United States Olympic Committee, and then you have each sport has their own national governing body. At the time, the national governing body for Taekwondo was the United States Taekwondo Union. Um, All right. And so they, I'm going to back up a little bit. When I first made the decision to fight the Olympic style, mm -hmm. I sent a letter to the United States Taekwondo Union. And I said, I'm Arlene Lemus. I have been fighting point all these years. Some of these events I've been in have prize money. That prize money is in account that I cannot touch until I retire uh, to keep my amateur status in the state of Illinois. I have done this for other sports. I didn't think it was ever going to come to play because of Taekwondo being in the Olympics, but sure. I did. Right. And um, I just want to let you know, I'm going to be fighting Taekwondo now. And nobody said a word. Nobody okay. responded to my letter. Nobody stopped me from fighting in the local tournament. Nobody stopped me from fighting in national collegiates. Nobody stopped me from representing the U.S. at the, at the Worlds. Until I won the gold medal at the Worlds, then it was, we got to stop Arlene. And then the United States Taekwondo Union led a campaign to block me uh, from competing in what would be the start of Olympic trials in 88. This really throws me, and I hope you know the answer to this next question, but why? I would think if you have a sport that you advocate for or in charge of, however you want to phrase it, and someone who shows incredible promise or, or skill or talent or whatever it is within your sport comes up and flashes brilliance or excellence, whatever that word might be, why would you want to stop them? Wouldn't you sit, want to sit back and go, wow, watch Steph Curry sink threes, not, no, no, Steph, go away. You make everybody else look bad. Well, I mean, you have to understand everything that's going around with Taekwondo at this time. People have been lobbying for years for it to become an Olympic sport. Okay. And all those people, all those athletes and all those coaches and administrators who have laid the groundwork to make this happen. And, you know, they've been fighting the good fight. Right. And they want their people in. Yes, exactly. And, you know, as an athlete, I'm sure it was tough for people to have been on team three, four years prior to the Olympic Games. And then I come in and make the team. 
Right. I've not, I've not paid my dues. I've not. Right. Um, so I'm sure, I mean, I'm not saying it's right, uh, but I'm sure that was the thought, you know, and I think there was a fear that there would be this huge influx, influx of these point fighters, you know, who, you know, if I could just put it in a description for you, you have the stark traditional uniforms of Taekwondo Mm -hmm. where no one differentiates themselves with any personal style. And then you have the point style, which is red, white, and blue and one sleeve off and bright (laughs) greens. You know, the open circuit was just, you know, bam, where the traditional Taekwondo Olympic circuit was just, you know, so they thought they were letting the bad kids in and you were going to yes. storm the castle and bring all the other Hellions with you. Yes. Did all and the other nothing, Hellions come with you? There were numerous athletes that tried to make the transition, but uh-huh. they didn't have the success that I had. Okay. And that's because it, it fit your style. So the yes. National Taekwondo Union or whatever they were called said, okay, we didn't really read your letter, but we didn't realize you were going to come out and win everything. <laughs> Oh, crap. You just won gold in Worlds, so we're going to tell you you can't. Yeah. So and I then show what up happens? The, I show up at the first leg of trials. Uh, Olympic trials. The, national, the, the way it worked is you have to qualify at a state. So mm-hmm. I won my Illinois states. But technically, because I won Worlds, it gave me a seed to nationals. Um, so I show up at nationals in Miami, Florida. I can see everything so clearly. It's a day of competition, and they call me, you know, all the Korean masters call me into this room and tell me, that's it, you can't compete. We're not allowing you to compete. So I called some friends. My parents scrambled and called. My mom called some people in Chicago, and they called some people, and they called some people. And the next thing I know, you know, these two attorneys come in with suitcase in hand to the national championships in Miami, <laughs> Go to that the head fast. desk. Oh yes, that fast. Uh, they head to this head table where you have all these masters and grandmasters sitting up there. Plop the suitcase, and literally, I remember it clearly because they were walking through competition rings, so they didn't even acknowledge. <laughs> like, let me zigzag right. through these right. rings. They're walking right through these rings. Uh, they put the suitcase on. They flip it open, and they said, "This is an injunction to stop the national championships." So they were going to stop the whole event. Wow. Um, and so after numerous hours of meetings and uh, everything else, uh, the, the, the outcome is that they will give me a hearing. You're still not allowed to fight at this still particular... Still not allowed to fight. Okay. And did, was there at the time when they pulled you in and said, you can't fight, was there a singular reason or at least an expressed reason because I had received winnings okay. in the open circuit. Okay. That's what so they were hanging their hat on. That was their, their argument um, because I was considered a professional. Uh, now, let me tell you that it would cost me $500 to fly to Los Angeles. <laughs> it would cost me another $300 in hotel, it would cost me $100 in registration fee. So overall, this event, and as a minor, I would have a parent with me. So right. now we're doubling these expenses, and I'd win $250 for Women's Grand Champion. Right. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> but I wasn't so, on the committee, so me getting it right. doesn't matter. Right. But so they, they, 
they at the end of this threat of injunction, they say, okay, we're going to give you a hearing. So I, the attorneys in Miami say, we've got someone in Chicago that can help you. He's going to take over your case. Was there a worry that even though you were getting a hearing that that missing this event in Miami would put a hamper on your Olympic aspirations? What they did is they assured me that pending the results of the hearing, I would go to team. I would go to the next leg of team trials. Okay. so I would have an automatic what they call a wild card into the into the next step. Okay. and this this hearing was held. Uh, uh, with with your lawyers? Well, I think I'm interrupting your story. You were probably about to tell me. Walk me through this. Yeah. I find this fascinating. <laughs> well, we, 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 we get with a team here, a gentleman attorney by the name of Michael Docterman, who was a fantastic human being. He calls me in his office with my parents, and he says, okay, I'm going to take your case. And this will be the last time you see me, Arlene. All I need you to do is focus on winning when I get you that shot to fight. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not going to keep you in on the day to day things. I'm not going to tell you what they're telling me. I'm not going to tell you what I'm telling them. You go you train. Just focus on your training. Exactly. Um, and, um, yeah, he said, I think what's going to happen here, Arlene, is they're going to give us this hearing. It's going to be unfair and, um, we're going to go to arbitration. And we're going to win in arbitration. So All we're right. going to let them shoot themselves in the foot with this hearing and we'll win in arbitration. So you have to be ready because you're going to get your chance to fight. Oh, I like this and guy already. I get chills. Yeah. Yeah. He was awesome. Uh, and so that's exactly what happened. They didn't give me real due process. Uh, we went to arbitration uh, and we won in arbitration. And not only did we win in arbitration, but we, we won things like being able to select my referees. So that, you know, here they give me a chance at fighting, but if they stack the referees against me, then, uh, so I was able to pick my referees. I was, uh, yeah. And that's. Was there, did you get at the time any sense of the reaction of the rest of the Taekwondo community? Not the committee that gave you the unfair hearing. But within the community, were you were, did you pick up on a response? Were people coming up and congratulating you? Were people no, throwing you the there, cold shoulder? There were there were probably two different schools of thought. There was this whole group of Taekwondo athletes that also were aware of the point circuit. So to them, I was a little bit of a celebrity, right? Because I had been on the cover of magazines because of the point circuit. I had. You know, I had had some notoriety with that. And so those people were like, man, it's cool. Arlene Lemus is fighting Olympic style. Um, But then there were a whole group of people that, you know, I was taking a spot from their teammate or, you know, I was not a true Taekwondo person or, you know, there was that fear around what was going to be next if I was successful there. Um, And it's even within my teammates, once I made the team, it was uncomfortable um, for quite a while, probably until we got to Korea. Was there, the, did we bond? Did I feel okay. like, man, I was kind of on this team, not an outsider. But for example, when I made the team and we went to the Olympic Training Center where we were staying there for a couple months to train, like I didn't have a roommate. No one wanted to room with me. Wow. Which was fine with me. I was happy to have my own room. <laughs> uh, but, but it's just little things like that uh, that took a while to, for people to, you know, I guess 
take a chance to figure out who I was as a person, not just everything that they had heard. I would suspect that leaving the country also impacts uh, everyone's perception of yeah. of who is we, and uh, you know yep. who is who's on the the team of we. Because uh, at, at home you might have been part ally and part enemy, but I think once you fly over there, who who's with you and who's against you seems to change. So so you won this in arbitration. And, and what and was the process? Tri- and, then won all, and then won the fights. I okay. had to still physically go and, you know, go through team trials, and which was a round-robin event with, I think it was six other athletes. Uh, and then the top two had to fight a month later to actually make the team. So it was quite a quite an intense physical fighting process. Um, and I know that the Olympics in which you fought were 1988. So is this process 1987? Where are we here? Early 88. Early 88. Okay. Yeah. This is the lead up. So, we, so I think the team was selected in er, finally, final selection was in June. Uh, and our competition date was September 17th. Okay. So you, you go through all this and you win your fights and you make the team. Does your training change now that you are a member of the Olympic team? Does your regimen change? Does your access to assets change? Do you suddenly have five trainers instead of one? Bigger, better facilities? What what, what changes in Arlene Lemus's day-to-day life after you make (laughs) the team officially? Well, I had already begun, just when I started the Olympic style, I had already recognized that I needed different things. I needed strength training that I didn't need for point. I needed endurance training. So I needed to run and do sprints and things like that, that I wasn't doing when I fought point. Um, so that had already been added into my uh, training regimen, but making the team, we had about four days to go home and gather ourselves. And then we were asked to show up at the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. And there was when we really, you know, it just, it got really serious. <laughs> That's right? when it got real. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they set up, this This was such an important event uh, for the United States Taekwondo movement. Um, it was so important for the United States team to have a good showing, to have a great showing at these Olympic Games. If there was ever going to be a chance for Taekwondo to become an official sport, if U.S. doesn't do well at it, U.S. doesn't back it, it doesn't become an official sport. Sure. So this was super, super important that when we were given this chance as a demonstration sport, that the U.S. have a good showing. And that was drilled into us every day. This is bigger than you. This is bigger. This is about Taekwondo having a future in the Olympics. Wow. Um, and um, I mean, I, 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 it's ignorant to say, wow, that sounds like a lot of pressure. Obviously, as an Olympic athlete, there are immense pressures and many different pressures. Is that an, an added one that you needed? Uh, I don't like it's I not, don't there's, there's an element, uh, Taekwondo is not a team sport. You're a member of a team, but it's an individual sport, right? So your ultimate right. goal as Arlene Lemus Taekwondo fighter is to go into competitions and win. Um, and, and you have this additional identity of being an American and part of an American team. But 
<clears throat> I mean, it almost sounds like, uh, did you ever see the movie Airplane, you know, when uh, Leslie Nielsen's looking at this poor guy who's flying the, the plane, and he's like, the life of everyone on this plane depends on you. <laughs> it feels a little, uh, you know, I mean, I, I know you could take it, but 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 wow, that's a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When we would get those talks from the coaches, it would kind of be like, wah, 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 wah. (laughs) Okay. Because we were so burned out, you know, from our training and everything else that was happening. You know, we were so full. I mean, for me, maybe it was different for other people, but for me, I was laser focused on what I could control. What I could control was my training, my approach, my performance in the ring. Right. Uh, So, but after, as I started to distance myself from that day, and started to see the path that the sport of Taekwondo was on. Then I got it. Then I was like, oh, Coach Lee, I understand what you were saying now. I get it. I see it. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Okay. So you're in uh, where? Colorado Springs, U.S. Yep. Olympic Training Center. We go through all this. We train. We get good pressure. We get other pressure. Yada, <laughs> yada. Um, and then it's it's time to go to Korea. Are there are there any other uh, events that that are story worthy that happen after you get to Colorado Springs, or or is the next thing? And then we got on the plane. Is it a chartered flight? Is no, it all Olympians? Just, no, you just get a no, ticket and you're no. on Pan Am and you fly to Korea. And and we were the first U.S. team to land in Korea. Uh, we got there even before the Olympic Village opened. We, uh, so you being the Taekwondo how, team, were the yes, first U.S. Yes. team of any sort. Is yes. there a reason for it, that? Again, this is that hyper focus that our coaching staff had, that this was super important for us. We wanted to get there early. We wanted to completely acclimate. And, um, yeah, we were there. We were staying at hotels and training at Yongsan Army Base before the Olympic Village opened. Uh, so it was great. Uh, it turned out to be like this little home field advantage, even though we weren't on our home field. Because you got there because, and got your roots in. Yeah. And and training at Yongsan Army Base, the military base, U.S. military base. Everybody mm. spoke English. People would okay. come watch our workouts. Of course. Sure. We had our own cheering section there. Uh, you know, it was, yeah, it was really cool. How long were you in Seoul? Wow, I want to say we got there three weeks before the village opened, and that was two weeks before the games. So yeah, we were about probably four or five weeks ahead of uh, of our competition date. And then how long? I'm 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 skipping over the important parts right now. But how long after <laughs> your Olympic event did you stay? Did you fly home the next day? You're like, I'm done. I'm out. You know, since I didn't, I wasn't able to participate in the opening ceremonies because I fought on the first day of the games. Mm-hmm. I was really excited about making it to closing ceremonies, uh, but I didn't. After I won, I stayed about a week and I was like, I just got to get home. I got to get home. I want to be with my family. I want to be with my friends. Uh, and uh, yeah. But we could have stayed till the end of the competition. Right. I don't know that you can do that now. I think they rotate uh, athletes out uh, once they finish their their event but yeah we were allowed to stay the whole entire time is your cat playing with something uh my dog is <laughs> a dog. chewing on a bone oh okay i was trying to, to figure that from uh can yeah, you maybe. hear that oh, yeah oh, yeah okay yeah these are the sounds of real life <laughs> i have a puppy so 
I uh, back in my gargoyles days. This is unrelated to the interview. I, uh, you know, I'm sure you remember how all the uh, FBI Academy yes. new agents would hang out in there and study. And I actually attended one of the graduations at the FBI Academy with one of the classes that I was just really close with early on. You know, when I was doing those 16-hour days every day, <laughs> and uh, Louis Free, who was at the time the uh, director of the FBI. Uh, was addressing this auditorium that's full of families of new agents who are graduating from the academy. And uh, somebody's baby started crying and they stood up because they were going to walk out and Louis Free implored them to stay. And he said, these people who are you're here to, to celebrate with and to cheer on have been away from home away from crying babies and barking dogs all these are the sounds of life please don't leave the auditorium stay right where you are no one's going to be happier to hear a crying baby than these people up here who've been trapped away from home i really i i i loved that he did that 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 struck me good for him i agree walk me through your event day in the olympics a is it possible to sleep the night before you're going to go compete in the Olympics? Uh, you know, again, it, when you're kind of at that level, you you kind of get exposure to other things. So things that are now mainstream, but they weren't mainstream then. But I was given these relaxation tapes, like literally cassette tapes, right? Uh, and... Um, they really helped me a lot. They helped me in visualizing my matches. They helped me in my relaxation. Um, how to, you know, it walked you through tense up the muscles just in your fingers, tense the muscles just in your toes. Um, so it just it was really cool. And, and it, it really contributed to just a kind of relaxed and like, I'm ready. I think that, and this is what I share when I was doing seminars and people would say, how do you handle your nerves? I think part of it comes from preparation, right? If you've done everything you possibly can to prepare. Sure. Yeah, of course. What else can you, you can't, you can't control anything else but that. Um, so, you know, to me, a lot of those nerves come up when you haven't prepared properly or, you know, and I used to tell my kids on my team that, you know, it's ghosts. Those <laughs> ghosts come up and get you, man. I know Miss Lemus asked me to do two sets and I only did one. Right. I know I told Miss Lemus I ran, but I didn't run, uh, you know, so if you can eliminate, you know, no one's perfect, of course, but if you can try to eliminate as many of those ghosts as you can from sneaking in the night before or day of competition, um, you know, then, then you're at peace. Yeah. You just go in and do your best. And that's where I was. I felt okay. that we had, we had trained, um, at an incredibly high level. I think we had, we were ready. Um, so you're ready. You've exercised your ghosts. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the only struggle I had leading up to my competition is trying to convince my coach to let me walk in opening ceremonies and still compete on the same day. (laughs) (laughs) And you lost that battle. Yeah, I lost that battle. One of your few losses. Okay, so um, walk me through this. You're you're in the village. You're in a room. No roommate? Or you have a roommate? No, we're we're in this big uh, townhome now. Oh, okay. We're like in this big... Multi-floor okay. condo right. townhome with the whole team staying together. You and all the all the tech window. So you go to bed. 
you it's it's your it's your event day or what is do we have a term competition day do olympians have term they like competition day yeah competition day so it's your competition day um you wake up paddle around the house in your pjs have a cup of tea eat an english muffin jump on the bus how does how does the day go yeah no head to head to the mess hall you know it was difficult because all our the rest of my team was leaving to go march and opening ceremonies uh and those of us that were competing on oh so it wasn't that all the taekwondo was competing you were one of the lucky ones so everybody else was going out to like walk around the stadium with the guy with the flag yeah and you're like no i got a match yeah there were four of us that were fighting on that day two men two women and then the rest of the team the you know the rest of the 16 went to went to opening ceremony so Okay. The four of us kind of stayed and, you know, watched opening ceremonies on TV, made sure we were hydrating, you know, went to the mess hall, you know, um, and got ready for the day, made sure we didn't miss our bus, you know, things like that, that you, you got to still pay attention to. That missing the bus would be bad. What time of day was your match? I assume you knew that you know this going into this. It was later in the afternoon because okay. opening ceremonies were in the morning. Um, so it was later in the afternoon. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, we had had, I'll share with you a couple of days before we had been asked to show up at Chang Chang Gymnasium and do a help do a walkthrough through to for technical a run through. Okay. And um, which is so what, where we were, you go, where the lockers are, yes, where you stand, and, where you sit. And mostly for the people who were running like the audiovisual things and, you know, making the announcements. Oh, and, the irony um, of that. Yeah. So um, so we go there and they walk through a, a ceremony where they're announcing people to go up on the podium. Right. Mm-hmm. And like. All of us were like, okay, wait a minute. We don't want to jinx it. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do this. Right. Like all the, all the U.S., all, like my whole team was like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Um, but I was like, okay, sure. I mean, everybody, they needed somebody to do it. So I go up there and I, you know, I get up on the, a medal ceremony and they announce that, you know, USA has won the gold medal. Right. Right. So. And, all pretend. It was pretty this is, funny. We're pretending just so that you would yes, know where to exactly. stand if it happened, even though we know it's not exactly. going to happen. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and, and, and to help them with the run through and how it sounded and sound checks and things like that. And then we left. Okay. Right? So that happened a couple of days before. So it was kind of interesting. Uh, it, because for me, I think it was perfect because it really kind of set my mind thinking at night. Right. That what am I visualizing? What am I really visualizing here? Um, so that was a kind of a, a nice thing. To I happen. am a big believer in the visualizing. I really am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We get to the event. Um, you know, my contact uh, with my family is very limited. Um, you know, we're not allowed to leave the Olympic Village. Uh, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a. I'm happy to see them at the arena, which is a wave. It's not really seeing them. You can actually see uh, them. How many? Do you know how many people are in attendance? Is this six thousand people? 500 people? I think the gymnasium held 12,000 and we were at capacity. Oh, okay. I think it was 10 to 12, 10 to 12,000. Because this was the first day of competition and it was an event that you could watch in its entirety. What I mean by that is you could watch from a a preliminary, semifinal, and finals all in one day. Okay. It was a pretty hot ticket. Sure. 
And it was Taekwondo in Korea. Right. So yes. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty hot ticket. Um, and yeah, so competition just started. And I just felt great. I remember even as in it, going into it, you always have some kind of aches or pains or twists or, you know, bruises. But I felt really, really healthy. My body felt really healthy. And as the competitions matches uh, as I went through, I was like, okay, I'm still feeling good. My shins aren't banged up. My elbows aren't banged up. You know, everything is good. Um, even into the finals, that's how I felt. I remember very clearly one of the volunteers asking me how I felt and then my coach translating that from Korean to English and saying, he's asking you how you feel. Um, and I kind of touched my legs <laughs> and my arms. I'm like, man, no, I still feel really good, you know. And then interesting enough, you know, I put up a number one. As mm -hmm. U.S. players, as U.S. people put up, they put up their index finger, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not how Koreans count. Koreans count from thumb first. Right. One, two, three, four. Uh, so the volunteer looked at me like... <laughs> thought you were saying you're number you two. This one, right? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And so then I remember very clearly my coach explaining to me, you know, Koreans say number one is the thumb, so give your thumb. So I was like, <laughs> okay, now it should be my thumb. So, and then how many, how many matches are there ideally if one goes on to win a gold medal, a first round, second round, third round, or how many, how, how does that work? There were 16 invited to this competition. 16 mm -hmm. uh, countries were invited in each okay. weight division. Um, so six goes, 16 goes to eight, eight goes to four, four okay. goes to two. Um, so yeah. All right. And my, for me, the most important match, uh, really more than the finals, uh, for, I knew if I could be successful in that second match, that second match was the current world champion from Spain. Okay. Uh, very, uh, strong fighter. The difference, but the, what was interesting is I had beaten her at the world universities. So I was very comfortable, but if I could beat her again here, then I knew I had a real shot at that gold medal. Outside of knockouts a taekwondo olympic rules match what did you say is, is this three rounds of three minutes at the time it was three three, is three minutes. minutes an eternity when you're out there fighting like that it can be it can be i mean you pace yourself and you you know you know you work in spurts of you know explosive energy and then you recover and then you're you know much like a boxing match um sure you know not everything is non-stop uh, you know, it's not nonstop three minutes of fighting. Right. Um, but yeah, I, my first match was a knockout. I knocked my opponent out. My second match against Coral Bistuet from Spain, um, there, there was an eight count. So it was almost a knockout. It was enough to stop the match and, you know, hey, are you okay? Uh, and, um, yeah. And then I fought Korea in the finals. Okay. And walk me through that. You know, it's, it's tough to beat Korea especially beating Korea in Korea. It's their national sport. Um, some may even say that, you know, the referees want Korea to win, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think it's a, it was a, especially at this time, it's not that way anymore. It's, there's been a lot of parity in the sport now. But you kind of walked into the match down two points when you were fighting Korea. You kind of just knew that okay. if you were going to win, you had to do it by, it, you know, it couldn't be a judge's decision. It could. You had to be really clear. Right. Um, so we knew that, and I was just, you know, able to put up some good, solid head kicks in the third round that made it 
very clear that you know I had done enough to win the, to win the match. When a uh, an Olympic Taekwondo match is over, they bring you both in. Uh, forgive me, this is just more common. So I'm going to say, as as a boxing referee would stand in the middle of the ring with both boxers at the end, right, mm-hmm. where he's going to raise the hand of the one who wins. And this this happens, or at least was how that happened in your sport back at that time. Yes. Correct? Yes. You would both stand on one side of the referee, and, and he, I assume it's a he, would be holding each, uh, uh, you know, one, one left arm and one right arm ready to raise the arm of the fighter who's declared victorious. Yes, correct? exactly. At this point, be honest, how confident are you that you're going to be awarded a victory? Not that you deserve it and that you won, but that you're going to get it. I mean, I felt that I had done physically enough to win the match and that it was clear, but I still was not sure that that's how the judges would see it, you know, that I had done enough. And because at this time, you didn't see the scoring. It wasn't active scoring. Now there's active scoring. As soon as a point is scored, a sensor talks to a scoreboard and boop, it goes up automatically. So you don't okay. know until that moment when the hand is is raised you did in 88 you didn't know until that moment so and so the referee raises your hand yeah yeah it was just unbelievable and unbelievable i mean i just you know all those emotions you see when you're watching the game and you wonder can can it really be like that can it really be that overpowering and yeah it's that overpowering yeah it's awesome how long is there between that moment when your arm is raised and the medal ceremony? Um, not much. They usher you to the back. Um, okay. You know, you take it's a 10, off, 15 minute kind of thing. You take off your and- gear, you get back in line, you, you know, you put your, for in this case, we were asked to wear an award, a podium uniform. So we changed out of, you know, my competition uniform and put on our, our, our platform, award platform uh, warm up and, um, Get in line and let's go. Okay. So in jumping ahead, we already know that that you won and that you got gold. Silver medal went to whom? Korea. Okay. Oh, the one who lost to you. Right. Um, And bronze. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Bronze went went to whom? Spain and Germany. Spain and Germany. Yeah, so two, two bronze medals. Okay. Is that because it was a points tie? Uh, no, that's just at the time. That's how they were doing. They didn't have they. There was a at that time. There was the school of thought that it made no sense to a spectator to see two losers fight. So two people who you know had just lost. Fight. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, okay. They, now it's much more competitive to get that bronze medal. You have to come back through a repertoire and and uh, and fight for it. It's actually more difficult to get a bronze medal these days in the Olympics Taekwondo than gold medal because um, you have to fight back up. Wow. But at this time it was just two bronze medals. There were no. Okay. I I understand that now. That makes sense. So you you come out and um are uh, I don't really pay attention and watch this. Um does everyone stand on the podium at once? Uh, Do the lower finishers climb on the podiums first? So the gold medal winner climbs up on the highest one last? Do you climb up last first? Gold medal comes up first. Okay. And you're standing there, and then your Korean opponent stands on the silver platform, and then the bronze ones stand on theirs. Yeah. Then it's medal ceremony. Same thing? Yeah. We first, we, we first we, you know, we raise our hands. As soon as we all get our medals, we raise our hands, you know, and then it's, you know, you're supposed to turn and, and, and watch, hear your national anthem. And watch the flag. 
Is the flag raised? Yeah. Okay. The flags are coming up. They're so all, the flags are coming up, and this is when up. the American National Anthem should be playing. Right. So what happens? And there's n- nothing. There's no music. So we're awkwardly, everybody's standing. Imagine, I mean, there were a lot of U.S. military sure. uh, in the crowd. Yeah. My family's in the crowd. You're all waiting for that opening refrain yes. of the Star-Spangled Banner, right. and it doesn't happen. Flags are almost literally three-quarters of the way up. Right. Uh, and no music. And so I'm looking at my family, and we just start singing. A cappella. So we start singing the national anthem, and then all the military that are in the arena, they start singing. So now it's this, I mean, resounding national anthem that everybody is singing while the flags are finishing being raised. And we're probably definitely over halfway singing it. And then the music starts on the on the audio on the speaker oh, system. Okay. So, <laughs> So then we sing it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just sing it again. Um, huh. But yeah, so I technically kind of heard it twice, uh, our national anthem. But yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. And then what it did is it, it was a moment that, of course, captured a lot of attention that this happened. So I don't think NBC had any thoughts of covering taekwondo that day but now they did (laughs) Uh, because now there was a story yeah are there two competing uh philosophies on what happened um some people say it was just a technical glitch some people say that they didn't have i mean korea had won all the gold medals that day no one else had won but korea uh so some people thought they just assumed that there would be no other country winning but korea uh so Either way, it made a very special moment for me. So it doesn't matter to me how that happened. It just was really cool. How does growing up being somewhat outwardly defined by a physical skill impact your self-view as you age? We are all aging, right? Right. And you got two choices, age or go in the ground. (laughs) So if, if, uh, if, Poets get better as they get older, and politicians get smarter, more compassionate, whatever it may be. What's 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 the conflict in one's head when it is in fact a physical skill which has no choice but to somehow diminish with the passage of time, impact how you see yourself and how you let that define you? Uh, I mean, I think I'm better about it now, um, but there was a point, you know. I mean, we're over thirty years removed from my winning of the medal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a time when I was kind of fresh out of retire, you know, freshly retired and not competing and, you know, clearly not at the physical level that I was, you know, three or four years earlier. And, you know, it was upsetting. It was like, man, you know. And then after that, the next thing that I remember is just not being able to recover quickly like from these normal little bruises and bangs and twists, like something that the next morning I'd be able to wake up and it would be gone now being right. three weeks of a nagging, you know, injury. <laughs> um, but now I've, I feel, I mean, I feel really good about where I'm at physically and I really see, um, I'm really grateful for the ability to still be physical. Uh, and I know that it's really important because 
this body has a lot of wear and tear on it. So the more fit I can be, uh, the better uh, I am. Um, and it, it really is my, uh, my counseling, my therapy session is, uh, you know, you still train. Yeah. Yeah. Getting in front of a, a, a bag and kicking it and punching it. It's, I'm much nicer to be around when I'm regularly doing <laughs> well, those workouts. The world appreciates that you have this outlet. Um, what do you feel or what should I think? <laughs> See, that's an open door. I'm letting you tell me what to think. <laughs> what about all those kids who are better at something than 99% of the people on the planet? Maybe 99.9% not quite good enough to get on the Olympic team? I mean, as a coach and as a martial arts instructor, I have seen the value of what training in a martial arts or participating in a sport gives you. Um, and a lot of the things that have influenced my life greater than my Taekwondo success came from other sports that I played in that I wasn't as successful. Uh, so Sport teaches us so much. Martial arts gives us so many gifts. I think my dog is... Uh, yeah, I can hear your dog. It's okay. <laughs> it's it's part of the fabric. I mean, but it just... Uh, it's. Uh, I mean, we know it, and it sounds corny and cheesy, but there are so many life lessons that come out of participating in sport. So to be jaded or to stop because you're not going to be the person that becomes a national champion or a world champion or an Olympic champion, It's you're just robbing yourself of so much um in addition to martial arts i mean i can't even begin to tell you how many gifts it's given me and uh, as an instructor i felt like man if i could just convince these my students how awesome it's going to feel to tie a black belt on uh and how much they will look back at that and gain from that and uh, be able to draw upon that over and over again in their life um it's just it's it really is an incredible activity for people to participate in, especially young people. So both martial arts and sport, I feel, um, you know, they just they've given me so much. And so if there are opportunities for other people to jump in there and get those type of things, why wouldn't you? I mean, I encourage it all the time, you know, to, to find it. It doesn't have to be Taekwondo or you know, find something uh, that keeps you moving and keeps you growing and keeps you striving for something. I hope we, it's, yeah, I do hear your dog. It's okay. I hope we have teachers and trainers and mentors out there who understand that well enough that they can impart it to all those almost Olympians. Yeah. If somehow I could magically put you in charge of the Olympic Games today. <laughs> Is there a first thing that you would want to change? Uh, I mean, of course, I would make sure that every athlete uh, has the type of training that I spoke of earlier, uh, which is, you know, that they have the ability to identify certain things, to stand up against them, um, you know, to identify inappropriate, inappropriate coercion, to be able to use their voice, um, to set a boundary, to be a good bystander. Uh, those things are just going to contribute to a healthier team, a healthier individual, and then a healthier team, healthier organization. Um, so I would add that right onto the training. You meet with your sport and your strength and conditioning coach. 
you meet with your empowerment self-defense coach, uh, you know, so it should be part of that training. I like it. Um, you know, in the sport of Taekwondo, we've never had a head coach that was a female, even though the women have won way more medals than the men have, um, you know, things like that, they have to change and not, and I'm sure that's not only in Taekwondo, um, but it is the way things roll in the United States. In other countries, Taekwondo has female leadership, uh, quite often, but it, it, it's not that way in the United States. And it's, I think it's across most of the sports uh, for whatever reason. And then timely and current events wise, I think that in order for people to heal from the things that have happened to them while they were under the protection of the Olympic Committee or the supposed protection of the Olympic Committee, uh, I think you have to clean the slate and put a whole new group of people into leadership. Uh, and that's not happened yet. There have been settlements that have been given out and, you know, some people have left organizations with huge payouts and their life intact. Um, so uh, anyone that enabled something, anyone that turned away, anyone that didn't report, uh, they, they need to not have an opportunity to do business in the Olympic sporting movement anymore. Well, I, I hope that comes to be. Um, Arlene Lemus, Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, your fantastic stories. And, and really, thank you more than anything for, for what you're doing right now. Um, I, it just it's, it's an incredible thing what you're doing with PAVE. And, and I hope you find a way to get that message out and impart real change. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so, too. Um, I'm really excited about it. And thank you. Thanks, John. Remarkable Stories is made by Boat Radio. It is written and produced by John Herlig and Mike McDowell. Our stories are edited in the Boat Radio studios in sunny Majorca. If you like today's show, consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen. For everyone at Remarkable Stories, I am Elizabeth Shray saying thanks for listening. Ooh. <laughs>